Welcome to the Elevate the Edge podcast. I'm Maribel Lopez of Lopez Research, and I'm joined with my co-host, Joe Peterson of Clarify 360. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome. Elevate the Edge is published bi-weekly. The podcast focuses on helping companies understand what edge computing is, how the market will evolve, and what you need to know to build successful edge computing strategies. Show notes and subscription links can be found at elevatetheedge.com slash episodes. We hope you'll enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Maribel Lopez and we are joined here today with Don Deloche. He is the managing partner of Rocket Wagon Venture Studios. Don, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Good. So many people have heard the term Internet of Things, but they're probably less familiar with the term cyber physical transformation. What's the difference between the two? Uh, sure. Well, a couple of things. One is IoT is more narrowly scoped. Uh, and the other thing is IoT as a term, you know, was existed with all kinds of fanfare back in, say, 2011 through 2015. And, and I mean, to some extent still does, but it, it's had a bit of a, a tumultuous past. And I think people are beginning to realize that the real focus is on the progression to a hyper-connected world. And, and that will embody what you think of is traditional IoT type of technologies, but extend to things like drones and 3D printing and what I would characterize as adjacent technology up to and including things like uh, security, privacy, uh, uh, and some of the analytic capabilities like machine learning and AI and you know all kinds of adjacent technologies that come into play when you think about the progression to a hyper-connected world. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. You know, it's interesting. I feel like IoT is one of those things that we've talked about in many incarnations over different times. Um, but, you know, one of the things I think we're wondering is, and, and there's a couple ways you could phrase this. We were just talking about uh, cyber physical transformation. So what's standing in the way of getting to that sort of full-blown case? Or do, you, do we even phrase it that way? Or how are you thinking about the next move into cyber? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things. One is is there's a great book by uh, McAfee and Bryn Jolson called The Second Machine Age. Mm. And, it, and it talks about the combinatory elements of technology and how the rate of technology is increasing. And if you think about the progression to a hyper-connected world, that comes into play on in so many areas. But the one of the biggest limitations is a lack of understanding, especially about systems architecture, as well as the value of the enabling capabilities. And and one of the areas that that manifests itself in the worst way is the lack of this type of understanding at executive levels of organizations. So so that exacerbates the problem. Uh, Other other impediments are fear and and fear that is is founded, if you will, fear based on security, fear based on privacy, fear based on capital expenditures, all of these are very real issues. And, and the way to overcome those issues is uh, in part basic education and familiarity and understanding. And then, and then making sure that you surround yourself with the talent that knows how to create these systems, implement these systems, and use these systems down to consumer level accessibility. But 
but again, the, most of the most of the impediments are not technology impediments; they're human impediments, if you will. Yeah, I can see that, Don. And you know, I think about the phrase "appetite for risk," and you allude to that in your article, "Industrial," that you wrote for Industrial Innovation, and you talk about how an early attempt at a project that goes wrong sort of taints the way people think about their fear. It's fear, like you'd mentioned earlier. So, and then in the last answer, you mentioned that education helps, right? With that fear. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other things that, you know, a company that maybe tried something and failed at an early attempt should be doing as they progress in order to progress? I mean, it, it's a it's a long list of things, but let, let me just give you a shorter version of that. Uh, I would say an understanding of what the obje- objectives of, of a of a cyber physical initiative would be, making sure that the communication amongst all the constituents that would be uh, either deploying or using these systems, um, the communication to let them know what it is and and what it means. Uh, and then there are other uh, elements, things like poor architectural design, uh, poor choices of the underlying elements, you know, whether it's the security choice or the privacy choice or the communication choice or the tiered architecture or the, the underlying data repository or, or the governance model. And, and, and there's many, many more. The, all of these choices have interdependencies. And a lot of times the choices just aren't made really well or with that level of contemplation. Lack of training is an issue. Lack of proper integration is is clearly been an issue in some of the uh, initiatives over the past that are marked by pilots and prototypes, but far less do you see production level enterprise class solutions that are in production. Again, we'll see more and more of these going forward, but it's been a much slower road than anybody expected, and that has tainted the industry um, in some ways. And I guess the last thing I would say is... Uh, among an artifact of some of the things I talked about is a lack of a lack of strong data contextualization, and and what that really equates to is limiting the leverage you get from the the models that run on top of the of the data that that's a, a function of these systems. So again, this all comes together, um, and, and I think that it, these are the the areas that preclude optimal implementation of these systems and and have the, the lack of the ability to do this over time has been somewhat of a um, impediment in terms of it's put leadership back on their heels saying, well, you know, we spent $10 million on that project and it went casters up. So we want to be really careful. And so people are more reluctant to go down this road, but the Progression to a hyper-connected world is not going to go away. It, it is an existential element that people need to understand is going to happen. Therefore, the answer isn't to duck your head in the sand. The answer is to learn and understand and communicate and plan and be thoughtful about how you embrace this technology. Those are great points. And, you know, if you had to say to somebody, hey, you absolutely need to do these two or three things when you're architecting for IoT, what would they be? Yeah, the, the number one thing, and people around me know that I think this because I've said it you know, thousands of times, and that is you have to think on a holistic level. Um, and, and what that really means is going back to kind of what I was just saying, you, 
you have to pay attention to the interdependencies that exist between the various elements of a system. And then you have to think holistically about the, the curation and the propagation of the data to the right constituent in the right way so that you get optimal leverage from the from the tool sets you're using. So what does that mean really? It means that first of all, you separate the creation of the data from the consumption of the data. You know, when, when you, when IOT first became a thing, everybody was rushing to IOT enable their products. So I'm gonna IOT enable my, my coffee maker or my low fat fryer or my grill or whatever. And you know, that's okay. Except for what, what in the rush to do that, most people were instrumenting an asset and then finding a way to push that message up into a cloud that was run by the manufacturer. And they would, they would consume that data and make the determination as to how they were going to make that available to the, to the buyer of that asset. Okay, it's fundamentally a peer-to-peer architecture. Is that good? Yeah, if it's 1969, but it's, but it's not good in today's world, there's so much data being generated, but the gen- the data is more powerful if you contextualize it. That means, that le- and let's just use an example. Let's say I'm a fast food restaurant and I IoT enable my low fat fryer, my refrigerator, or or my lighting system, or whatever. You know, at some point you're going to say, "Hey, I want to actually look at what's going on with the low fat fryer in the context of the grill system, or whatever." And then all of a sudden you're going to say, yeah, I should also really want to look at that in the context of my point of sale or crew scheduling or inventory. And then once you've decided that you're a genius for having done all that, it's going to occur to you that the city actually is capturing micro uh, micro weather, uh, pedestrian traffic, street traffic, all kinds of external third party data. And so now you're going to further build your models. And, and by thinking holistically like that, you can then drive value into how you use that data, but you can also push that value out, whether it's the atomic data or derived data, to the various constituencies you care about, whether it's the FDA or your supply chain partners or or whatever. And so again, thinking on a holistic level is the number one imperative for getting these things right. Chick-fil-A, how to get fries to the user faster in the (laughs) drive-thru. Hey man, Chick-fil-A sure. really does that like a boss. They can get you anything you order fast. So we, you know, we we know that Chick-fil-A is an operations master. But you know, Don, I love where you were going with this because I watched a lot of the early IoT implementations, and so much of it focused on just what I could connect and what protocols I had to connect, and not enough of it focused on the what am I trying to do with it? When I get all these data sources, how do I pull together the data sources and get some new information that I didn't have before running around with clipboards, for example? And, and that was the crux of the matter, you know, millions of dollars, years of time. And at the end of it, you've got a bunch of connected stuff and no extra insight. So I, I enjoyed where you were going with the, you know, the objectives, the communication, understanding the architectural design, the data contextualization, and and really trying to pull some of those things together. So I'm I'm wondering from your perspective, have you seen any interesting implementations today that work or is it too early? Or how would you characterize IoT implementations as they stand in 2022? 
given that we've been at this for a while now. Yeah, uh, it absolutely is not too early. And yes, I've seen so many interesting implementations. Because so many people have either failed or been slow to see some level of success, doesn't mean that there hasn't been all kinds of examples of what can be successful. It means that some people got it better than others. And it means some people move fast, people and or companies move faster than others. But are there are there interesting examples of success? 100%. Let me start by talking about just a few areas that are the ones that I'm closest to by virtue of some of the work that I've been doing. So let's take the construction industry as an example. Everything from um, asset management, which has all kinds of implications across the construction industry in terms of you know, whether it's theft or, or, or the, um, you know, the easy access to the right assets at the right time, uh, uh, BIM integration. So, so lean construction principles and integrating your, uh, your, your vertical construction site so that you run closer to on time and on budget. And most don't. Um, but then things like using, uh, uh, really cool technologies like augmented reality that draw from the BIM system so that you can see literally virtual reality representations of the project at any stage, where it started, where it is today, what it should look like. That actually facilitates the dialogue between the various constituents that are the contractors on a site or, or, or people that, that are associated with a site to ease and, and, and facilitate better communication. But it's also things like 3D printing for for printing parts that are needed. You know, the last thing you want are five, you know, you know, tractor trailer trucks blocking the street because you're waiting for some part that needs to be brought in and it stops everything else in its tracks. Um, Also, things like worker safety, fall detection, um, drone inspection uh, of large buildings, um, uh, the tools for doing water and energy management at building sites, site coordination. And then if you then, okay, so we're going to build the building and then it's sitting there, it's sitting there in this large city. So let's extend out to the large city. What If you look at some of the, the use cases in smart cities and where we're going there, it's fascinating in its own right. So things like uh, solutions for public safety, solutions for public infrastructure, connectivity, telehealth, smart building management, and, and autonomous buildings, you know, any one of these, you know, we, we could spend an hour talking about any one. But let me just give you one example. So let's look at the integration between some of these systems. And, and by the way, this is not a far reaching, you know, uh, Jetson's example. This is this is stuff that's doable today, by and large. Um, l- let's say we have smart lighting that's in the city and, and the smart lighting is LED lighting. So it's incredibly energy efficient, but you also can control things like the colors. And so you have, uh, uh, certain public safety, um, EMS type uh, instances where, where, uh, 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 ambulance needs to get down the road and fire trucks and whatever you can, you can start to implement, um, uh, lighting systems to notify everybody that there's an ambulance coming in the right-hand lane or whatever. The other thing is, um, let's think about uh, the, the the infrastructure in a smart city and that like the dome lighting. That's where a lot of the smart city services are going to be rendered so that underneath the dome of the lights, not only do you have this LED lighting, but you have things like microphones and and uh, networking capabilities and, and all kinds of additional sensors that are built into the infrastructure. Well, there's a uh, there's the technology that's out there to do things like shot detection. 
So if I have a shot that goes off, the microphones in the, the adjacent um, domes around where the shot goes off can triangulate and determine exactly what was the origin of that gunshot. In turn, it can illuminate all of the lights and it can also talk to all the private buildings and have them not only illuminate their lights, but any cameras that are close by can then be activated. Drones can be deployed much faster than people on foot or police cars to where now all of a sudden you have aerial views of what's going on. All of this can be tightly integrated. This is cyber-physical transformation. This is taking the built world and the digital world and combining them together to create better capabilities that ultimately lead to a better way of life. So, yeah, and, and again, Industry 4.0 and energy, uh, energy management, transportation management, AVs, car flocking, you know, all, there's just all kinds of things that are, are either here today technologically available today, but requiring certain advances in terms of the, you know, uh, underlying regulatory environment, whatever. But these are all examples of where we're going to be in the future. And the future comes so much faster than what most people think. So if we try to stop and think about what we're going to look like 20 years from now, that's a, that's a real challenging question to ask. But five years from now, it's pretty cool. I was going to ask you a question about what industries you saw as being early adopters, but you kind of went through the whole field of it could be used anywhere. It's really thinking more about what should be connected and the use case of how to do it. So mm -hmm. I'll toss over to Joe for the next question. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I love the idea that you want to get data to the right constituent in the right way. Um, but, you know, actually Maribel, I think, that your next question is probably uh, more in line. So I, I love where you were going with this whole discussion of how multiple industries can use this technology. And it's really about thinking about the use case and what you're connecting. But what industries stand to gain the most from IoT cyber physical transformation and why? Sure. Great question. And I, I, I would say the answer is, are probably construction and agriculture. And the answer is they have been the least likely to embrace cyber-physical transformation along the way. So let's take construction as an example for two reasons. One, I think it's a great example. And two, I don't really know that much about agriculture, so I'm much more comfortable <laughs> answering about construction. But the answer is the construction industry has been has very low margins, and it's been very reluctant to engage in R&D and innovation. And as such, if you go back and look at this, it's very interesting that the productivity has stayed largely flat over 30 years while industries around them have been growing and growing and growing. And a recent McKinsey study came out and basically said, if you look at construction, um, the single biggest lever the industry can, can pull is that of digital transformation and cyber-physical transformation. And, and while people are reluctant to do that, I think what we're about to see is sort of this crossing of the Rubicon, if you will, where the leaders and the forward thinkers within construction are going to start to show greater and greater return, financial returns and, and, and begin to excel with what they're doing by virtue of using this type of technology. And that's going to drive the people who are inclined to be laggards forward 
But I think we're about to see a big spike in productivity in the industry as a result of leveraging this type of innovation. I agree that there are definitely some industries that have not fully embraced connectivity and security the way others have, and that in doing so, they can really get to the next level of business value for their company and deliver new products and services to their customers. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Well done. Lots of so much good information um, that you're sharing today. We always like to end the podcast with a fun fact. And we'd like you to share a fun fact with us. Could be about anything. (laughs) Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it kind of close to home with entrepreneurship, although I was toying with Grateful Dead facts, but let's just stick with entrepreneurship. Um, here's what I would say. The overwhelming number of resources supporting innovation are focused on what I would argue might be the wrong stage. So while the vast majority, about 95% of the resources in the innovation ecosystem are, are, are largely incubators and accelerators, those are focused on stage one entrepreneurs which is the stage from the idea on the napkin to the launch or call it the minimum viable product. But, but, and while 90% of startups fail, 70% fail basically from the launch point to scalable, repeatable execution years two through five. And, and again, so, so the resources that are just overwhelmingly prevalent in the innovation ecosystem are, are focused on that early stage, but most startups actually fail in the execution phase due to execution risk. So there you go. I did not know that. That is that is very interesting, given all the money that they put in and spend, right? So right. right. Yeah, sometimes I think money is a blessing and a curse, though, because I think if you, well, no, sometimes I see startups get a lot of money and they just burn through it because they don't fully appreciate that at some point you don't get more of it. At some point you have to get to the other side where uh, somebody wants to buy you or you need to IPO or whatever it is. Right. Right. And, and, and what I would say to that is you're seeing a new class of, of capabilities through venture studios coming out that it's, it's really focused on the execution phase. And, and the whole idea is you wrap a team of experienced entrepreneurs around the startup and you help them do things like hire the right people, get product market fit right through the right, you know, customer feedback loops, you know, build the right board, manage their cash correctly, take the appropriate risk. You know, the, the talk about fun facts. One of the, is this in a fact, it's just more of a, a, a meme, if you will. You hear people say all the time, you know, uh, entrepreneurs love risk. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Good entrepreneurs hate risk. They're willing to take it. <laughs> they spend a lot of time understanding how to avoid it so that they stay out of the ditch. You know, again, it, it, it's, it's at the end of the day, it comes down to execution. And that's what kills most startups is that is that execution phase. I can totally see that. Well, Don, thank you so much for your time and your attention, your insight. And it's wonderful here that we're finally starting to progress in some of the edge IoT and and cyber landscape. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Don. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe so you can easily find us again. Follow us on Twitter at Maribel Lopez and at Digital Cloud Gal and on LinkedIn. Links to our social profiles, show notes, and ways to listen to the podcast 
can be found at elevatetheedge.com. Music